If you have a Bible, I'd love for you to open it to Matthew chapter 18. If you're reading through the New Testament with us this year, the chapters that we read this last week are Matthew 16 to 20. Uh, Wednesday night, we looked at Matthew 19. This morning, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 18, verse 21 to 35. So this is two Sundays in a row where we have talked about one of Jesus' parables. Last week, we talked about the parable of the sower in the soils. This morning, we're going to talk about a parable that traditionally we know as the parable of the unforgiving servant. So I don't want to repeat everything that I said about parables last week, but I do want to make sure that we're uh, off and running on the right foot. So let's uh, make a few quick comments about parables. The Greek word parabole is a word that means to put one thing beside another for the purpose of comparison or illustration. And I think a helpful definition of what Jesus is doing in a parable is found in James Boyce's commentary on Matthew. He says, a parable is a story from real life or a real life situation from which a moral or a spiritual truth is drawn. So these are not fables. There are no talking animals in parables. These are not uh, imaginary sort of sci-fi type stories. They're just very mundane, ordinary, day-to-day things. And Jesus, in a parable, is making a comparison. He's taking an ordinary thing, and he's setting it next to a spiritual thing, and he's saying this ordinary thing helps you understand that spiritual thing. In this instance, we're talking about a man who had servants who owed him money, and Jesus is setting that next to the kingdom of God, and he's saying, you can understand something about the kingdom of God when we set it side by side with this thing from everyday life. Now, last week, we talked a little bit about why Jesus taught in parables, and I don't want to repeat all of that this morning. What I do want to say is this, Almost always when you read one of Jesus' parables, you really need to know the context of what was going on in Jesus' life when he told that parable if you want to make sense of what Jesus is saying in the parable. That's almost always true. There's some parables, they're so clear they can just stand alone, but this is one of the parables of Jesus that you really need to understand something about the context. And so let me make this note. Matthew 18, 15 to 20. Those are the verses that come right before our passage. It details Jesus's instructions for how we handle sin inside of the believing community. Theologians often call these instructions instructions about church discipline. The aim of the instruction is repentance, forgiveness, and restoration. Now, you can go back and read these verses, 15 to 20. How do we deal with sin when people within a church family sin against each other? That's what Jesus is talking about. There is an instance as Jesus gives these instructions. There is a a situation, a possibility envisioned where all of the avenues have been exhausted for reconciliation and someone who is unrepentant in their sin has to be removed from membership in the believing community. Theologians would say we've gone all the way to the end of excommunication. Someone is no longer a member of a certain church. That might have to happen in the process of church discipline, but it's not the aim. 
It's not why you start the process in the first place. It's not why you go to someone who has sinned sinned against you so that you can kick them out or run them off. The aim in what Jesus is saying to his people is you need to forgive each other, you need to repent of your sin, and you need to be reconciled in the unity of the church needs to be maintained. That's the context that flows into this big idea in our passage this morning. Forgiven people are forgiving people. If you are a person who has had your sins forgiven by God through the finished work of Jesus, what Jesus is saying this morning is, that's you, if you are forgiven, you will increasingly, over time, become more and more and more forgiving towards others. So, take your copy of the scriptures. We're going to read our passage. I'll read it out loud. You can follow along. This is what the Word of God says in Matthew 18, beginning in verse 21. Then Peter came up to him and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. It's the word of God. Let's pray together. Father, this morning we have sung about your goodness, that you are our heavenly Father and that you are a good Father. We have sung about your mercy and we have confessed our sinfulness and we have Proclaimed that your mercy is greater than our sin. We thank you for that truth. Father, we have sung about the life and the death and the resurrection of your son, Jesus. And we thank you that you sent Jesus to pay our sin debt. 
Father, in all of these truths, we are thankful for your kindness and your goodness and your mercy and your compassion and your willingness to forgive. Father, we pray this morning for those who have never received the forgiveness of their sins, and we pray that you would work in their heart this morning and that they would trust in Jesus. Father, we pray for those of us who have trusted in Jesus, and we pray that as we think about this parable, that your spirit would drive it home to our hearts and that we would be convicted and that we would be conformed to the image of your son. We pray in his name, amen. I want to tell you about a police officer named Richard Houston. Officer Houston was a decorated 21-year veteran of the Mesquite Police Department in Mesquite, Texas. A couple of weeks ago, he got a call while he was on duty. He responded to a call at Albertson's grocery store. There was a domestic dispute between a husband and a wife and other people involved. And this officer responded to the call. He went to the Albertsons, he approached the folks who were the source of the problem, and almost immediately he was shot by the man, the husband, who was causing the dispute. As soon as this man shot Officer Houston, he turned the gun on himself and he tried to commit suicide. It was a horrible situation. Officer Houston was taken to the hospital and he died shortly thereafter from the wounds that uh, he received. The man who shot Officer Houston and then shot himself did not die. He was also taken to the hospital, but he made a pretty impressive recovery, and he is now awaiting trial. So this happened several weeks ago, and you know when somebody dies, there's a funeral. And so they had a funeral for Officer Houston, and at that funeral, his 18-year-old daughter, Shelby, spoke. And some of you have seen this. You've seen it on the news, you've seen it online, it's been shared, but I just want to share with you about a one minute and 30 second clip of what Officer Houston's daughter, 18-year-old daughter Shelby, had to say at her dad's funeral. So watch this clip. I remember having conversations with my dad about him losing friends and officers in the line of duty. I have heard all the stories you can think of, but I've always had such a hard time with how the suspect is dealt with. Not that I didn't think there should be justice served, but my heart always ached for those who don't know Jesus. Their actions being a reflection of that. I was always told that I would feel differently if it happened to me, but as it's happened to my own father, I think I still feel the same. There has been anger, sadness, grief, and confusion. And part of me wishes I could despise the man who did this to my father. But I can't get any, of, any part of my heart to hate him. All that I can find is myself hoping and praying for this man to truly know Jesus. I thought this might change if the man continued to live. But when I heard the news that he was in stable condition part of me was relieved. My prayer is that someday down the road, I'd get to spend some time with the man who shot my father. Not to scream at him, not to yell at him, not to scold him, simply to tell him about Jesus. So if you're like me, you watch that clip and you think about the story and 
you have a thousand questions running through your brain. I picked that clip to share with you this morning as an example of forgiveness. One, because it's current. It's something that has just happened. It's not a distant thing. It's very real. It's right in our own backyard, more or less. I picked it because it's a powerful clip, and it's one that many of you have seen already. And I picked it because when you watch just that one minute and 30 seconds, you are probably just like me. You are left with a lot of questions. Whenever I find myself preaching about forgiveness, in particular the forgiveness that we ought to extend to other people, inevitably I am left wrestling with a thousand questions that can't all be fit into a sermon. And so you watch that clip and you find yourself thinking, would I have the ability to say something like that in a situation like that? Would I think along the same lines as what this 18-year-old girl was thinking? You find yourself thinking, what if the guy who did it wasn't even sorry that he did it? Would that change how she felt, how I would feel? You find yourself wrestling with questions like, how do I even make sense of what happened in the first place, much less the forgiveness aspect? How do I make sense of the fact that there is a good, good God that we just sang about who let such a horrific thing happen? All of these questions, I don't intend to try to answer any of those questions this morning. I bring up this example and I talk about some of these questions to say this. Every time I come to the end of a lesson or a sermon on forgiveness, I'm just asking a lot of questions to myself and I'm thinking through a lot of things. And I have a hunch that when we're done this morning, you're gonna have in the back of your mind rolling around, okay, but what if, fill in the blank. Okay, but have you thought about this? In fact, after the first service, I had some people come up and say, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, I have questions, I'm not sure. And I said, yeah, me too. And my aim this morning is not to say everything that could possibly be said about forgiveness. My aim is not to answer every possible question and talk about every possible scenario in which we might have to forgive someone. My aim is simply to listen to what Jesus has to say about forgiveness to try to think through what this parable means and how it might apply to our lives. So I wanna start by making just two comments about forgiveness and I'll make these quickly. Number one, Jesus upping Peter's seven to a 77 is not intended to be a higher ceiling on our forgiveness. So you remember, Matthew 18, 15 to 20, Jesus says, if someone sins against you, you go, you talk to them, this is how you handle it. The aim is reconciliation and forgiveness and unity. Peter listens to that, and Peter, who's always thinking, he's usually thinking out loud, comes to Jesus, Matthew 18, 21, and he says, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? How many times do I have to do that? And he throws a number on the table. Now, in Peter's day, the rabbinical consensus was three. Someone sinned against you, asked for forgiveness, you had to forgive them three times. It was the three strikes you're out rule long before anyone invented baseball. Peter takes that 
traditional assumed three. If you're a math major, you can follow me here. He doubles it, and then he adds one more for good measure. And he says, how about seven? Some people think he's playing off of the three and turning it into a seven. Some people think he's referring to something in the Old Testament, maybe related to Cain or several other stories or theories, but he throws out seven. And Jesus responds with 77. And if you have ears to hear what Jesus is saying in this parable, you understand that Jesus isn't just raising the bar, raising the ceiling, and Jesus is not saying, listen, 77 is enough, and on offense 78, you no longer have to forgive. It's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, Peter, your heart as a forgiven person always needs to turn towards forgiveness. That needs to be the default position of your heart. As someone who has been forgiven, you need to be inclined to forgive others. He's not just raising the limit, but he's talking about our heart. He talks about that in verse 35. He talks about forgiving your brother from your heart. Secondly, let me say this. Forgiveness does not always involve forgetting, nor does it always remove the consequences of sin. So you've heard people throw around the phrase, forgive and forget, forgive and forget. I have a pretty strong hunch that Shelby will never forget what has happened, intellectually, mentally. She will not have the ability to forget that. And many times this idea of we forget something is just sort of a confusing thing. I think people end up feeling a false sense of guilt if they can't forget a particular thing that maybe someone else has done to them. I don't think that's exactly what Jesus is driving at, this idea of forget uh, and forgive. I don't think Jesus is saying that all earthly consequences are wiped away in forgiveness. And in the video clip, Shelby said, I'm not talking about there being no justice. Needs to be justice here. Justice has to be served. In our church, if you want to work in the nursery, we run background checks. There's some things that ought not be forgotten, and there's some things that have consequences, even if forgiveness is extended to a particular person in a particular situation. So we're not saying that everything is just forgotten. We're not saying there are no earthly consequences. If you were with us on Wednesday nights, the last go-around, we talked about the kings of Israel and Judah, and Corey and I told you every single week, look, sin has consequences, and you see it in the lives of these kings. Maybe there are instances where sin is forgiven in the lives of these kings. Some of them did not seek forgiveness, but some did, and forgiveness was granted, but there were still consequences for things that happened, and that's certainly true as we think about forgiveness this morning. Verse 35 is key. This is really about the posture or the position of your heart. Jesus talks about our heavenly Father doing the same to us if we do not forgive our brother from your heart. Jesus is not asking you to just say some verbal phrase and check a box. He's talking about something that is happening or that ought to happen in your heart. Heart. He's not asking anyone to just go through the motions of saying something they don't mean. He's saying this is something that has to be the condition and the orientation of your heart. Forgiving people 
from your heart. The question is not, will I be able to forget this? Or will every consequence be wiped away? The question is, in my heart, am I going to hold on to this wrong that's been done to me? And am I going to continue to use it to beat you over the head? And to hold it against you, to count it against you? Or will I forgive the debt that you owe to me? This is a a heart matter. I think it's worth noting just so we know where we're at as a society. I remember growing up hearing people say the American public is very forgiving. And what they meant by that, I think, was that any famous person or any person could do something really stupid, really stupid, and all you had to do was come clean and say you were sorry and apologize and go through the right motions, and then the American public would just kind of tend to move on. I heard that a lot when I was growing up. I don't think we're there as a society today. I don't think we're a forgiving society. I think we're a canceling society, a silencing society, a cruel society, a vindictive society. There's reasons for that. But I make the point simply to say to you, when we begin to talk about forgiveness, this will go against the grain of our culture. This will feel like swimming upstream in our society because all the voices around us today say, no, 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 don't forgive. Use this as a tool to bludgeon them over the head with until you get something out of it. And Jesus in this passage is very countercultural in talking about forgiveness. So let's talk about the parable. What is Jesus saying in the parable of the unforgiving servant? The first thing that Jesus is saying is this. We have an unpayable sin debt with God. You and I have an unpayable sin debt with God. So if you look in your Bible at verse 24, Jesus tells us about a man who had a debt of 10,000 talents. Let's talk about talents. Talents were a unit of weight. We're not talking about dollars or euros or anything like that. We're talking about how much does something weigh. 10,000 talent of weight. Presumably this is of gold. This man has an incredible debt. If you go back, I read six or seven commentaries. They all disagree on how much money this is. So let me just help you understand 10,000 talents, okay? A Hebrew talent was about 75 pounds. A Roman talent was about 130 pounds. So you pick a number in the middle or high or low, whichever one, okay? 100 pounds. Multiply it by 10,000. Then multiply it by the current present day value of gold. I think this week we were around 1,800 bucks for an ounce of gold, not a pound of gold, but an ounce of gold. And by the time you add all those zeros up on your little calculator, at some point you're going to get an E that says this is a big number. It's a really big number. It's too big for you to understand. That's what the calculator means when it says E. You can't understand what I'm doing, you have no concept of what this number means. When you read about this man with a debt, you should not say, oh, I know about debt, I have credit card debt. That's not what we're talking about. I don't care how much credit card debt you have, that's not what we're talking about. You say, okay, but I paid for my school with student loans, 
So I know about debt. No, we're not talking about student loan debt. Listen, what we're talking about here is more like national debt. In fact, there is a Jewish historian, was a Jewish historian named Josephus. He tells us all kinds of weird stuff about the Roman Empire, things happening in and around Palestine in the first century. Josephus says that in one year, the total tax revenue of the part of the world where Jesus lived, Galilee and Samaria and Judea, the total amount of taxes that the Romans collected in that part of the world for one year was about 900 talents. This man has a debt to one individual of 10,000 talents. So when I say 10,000 talents, we have no concept of what that means. When Jesus said 10,000 talents, what he meant is get the calculator out and start typing in zeros until you get the E. This man owed the national debt to this king. Jesus is trying to say something to you and me about our sin debt. Human beings are born with the idea that we can get even with God. We know we make mistakes, we mess up, we're not perfect, but we all have this built-in idea that surely I can do enough good to outweigh the bad. I can pay enough of my debt back to God to get back in his good graces. And when Jesus throws out this number of 10,000 talents, he's saying, nope. You're never going to get there. You will never be able to tip those scales. The debt that you and I have, and all of us have it, we're all sinners. When we sin against an infinitely holy God is an unpayable debt, at least humanly speaking. Secondly, God is willing to show mercy. We sang about God's mercy this morning. God is willing to show mercy and forgive Look at verse 25. The king says, well, take the man, take his family, take all of his possessions, have an estate sale, and sell them into slavery so that a payment can be made. Now, you understand when you have a concept of 10,000 talents that this man's estate and his value as a slave and his family's value as slaves is not going to scratch the surface of this debt. It's not going to cut anybody's losses. It's not going to make anybody close to even. Selling this man into slavery is punishment for his debt. It's not an attempt to get even. He's punishing the man. Sell him. And the man hears this and he falls down on his face and he says, it's almost comical when he says it, be patient with me. I will pay all of it. This is like you walking into the halls of Congress and saying, I hear we have a debt. If you'll give me one more week, I'll write you a check to cover the national debt. It's preposterous. It's not going to happen. When this guy says, I'll pay you back every penny, everyone just, it's not even funny. It's ridiculous. And then the king responds with something equally ridiculous. He says, okay, you're released. You're free to go. Your debt is forgiven. 10,000 talents. It's forgiven. 
Jesus is telling us something about God's heart and that he is inclined to forgive sinners who have unpayable sin debts. And if your thoughts about God include the idea that he's probably annoyed when you ask him to forgive you, he's probably put out when you come and ask for forgiveness, he's reluctant to forgive you, if your thoughts about God include some idea that you need to spiritually twist his arm and manipulate him into being willing to forgive you, your thoughts about God are unbiblical. Listen, God is not offering to put your sin debt on layaway. God is not a debt consolidation company who says, I'll put it all in one easy payment. You'll just pay it forever. God's not like the timeshare guy who says, I can get you out from under this weight with one small fee. God says, I'll forgive it. I'll just wipe it away. And you will owe me nothing. It's an amazing thing when it happens in the parable. It's an amazing thing when it happens in our lives. Thirdly, what do we learn from this parable? Our refusal to forgive others is an ugly thing. It's an ugly thing. Verse 28, the man leaves. His debt's been paid, been forgiven. He finds a friend, and the friend owes him 100 denarii. In Jesus' day, if you were a working man, just a common working man, and you put in one honest day's work, your wages would be one denarius. One day's wages. So this guy has a buddy who owes him a hundred days wages. Let's be honest. That's not nothing. If you had a debt to somebody of three months salary, they would probably want you to pay it. And if somebody owed you three months salary, your boss, you would probably think, hey, I'd like to get paid for that. You have a debt. You would like to have it paid. So he finds his buddy, and his buddy owes him three months' pay. And his buddy, word for word, says the same thing that he said before the king. Please be patient, and I'll pay you back. I promise I'll pay you back. And he grabs his friend by the throat, and he chokes him. He physically assaults him. And he calls the cops, and he has his buddy thrown into jail after having just been forgiven the national debt for three months' wages. When his friends see it, they immediately know, that's, that's not good. <laughs> you shouldn't treat people that way. I mean, you shouldn't treat people that way, period. But especially when you have just been forgiven so much, you're going to turn around and make a big deal out of the, the three months pay? It's an ugly thing. They know it. Sometimes our unwillingness to forgive looks just this ugly. I mean, I know people, you know people who just out and out say, I will never forgive, I will never forget, I will never get over it, I'm not moving on. It doesn't matter what they do, it doesn't matter what they say. I am resolute in my anger and my bitterness. I will not forgive. I will continue to beat them over the head with it. Most of us are more civilized than that. 
Most of us are more civilized. Most of us are willing to say the right thing out loud. But in our heart, maybe not so much. Maybe in our heart we keep reliving a wrong. We keep rehearsing it and rehashing it in our minds. Maybe we walk around and we say, oh, I've forgiven that person, but maybe we'll make a snarky comment on social media. We won't put anybody's name in it, but we'll put enough that everyone knows what we're talking about. That's a little bit more civilized than grabbing somebody by the throat. Maybe we walk around and we say, oh, yeah, yeah, we're, we're good, we're good, we're good. It's okay, moved on. But maybe secretly we're looking for an opportunity to gossip about that person who sinned against us or to slander them or to warn someone else about what's happened. Hey, you just should know. You just should know what happened to me. It has nothing to do with protecting someone else. It has everything to do with you punishing someone behind their back. Here's my point. I don't care if you're grabbing somebody by the throat and sending them to jail or you're posting snarky comments on social media or you're just quietly looking for opportunities to gossip about somebody else. If you are unwilling to forgive others, you're like this man, the unforgiving servant. And it may look more civilized in your life and in my life, it's just as ugly. Lastly, there is a day of judgment coming for everyone. This parable ends with the idea of judgment. The unforgiving servant is taken to judgment. And as you read through the Gospel of Matthew and our New Testament reading plan, and as, as you move into Mark, and then as you move into Luke, and you read these parables, I would just have you take note of how often Jesus' parables end with the idea of judgment. Not all of them. I'm not even saying most of them. But many of them. When Jesus is making these comparisons to teach us about the kingdom of God, end up talking about judgment. Here's the reality. There is a day of judgment, a day of reckoning coming for every last one of us. And we can live our lives trying to pretend like that day's not coming. It's coming. Today, you're one day closer to that day than you were yesterday. Tomorrow you'll be one day closer to that day than you are today. And when that day comes, you can stand before God on your own merits, holding your own sin debt. Or you can stand before God having your debt forgiven and being clothed in the righteousness of God's Son, which brings me to application. How do we apply the parable of the unforgiving servant? First, God has forgiven our sin debt because Jesus paid our debt at the cross. Paid our debt at the cross. You know, in this parable, as the, the unforgiving servant is forgiven, there's no real talk of payment. There's no real serious talk about atonement. There's no mediator who steps in and says, I'll take on the debt, I'll pay the debt. There's no co-signer on his loan. The debt is just sort of wiped away. And the emphasis in this parable is the freeness of God's forgiveness, the wideness of his mercy and his willingness to forgive our debt. 
But if you read the rest of the New Testament and you think through what the Bible has to say about forgiveness, one of the things you learn is that not only is God merciful, but he's also holy and righteous. And he's not going to just say to our sin, eh, it's no big deal. Because it is a big deal. And God won't pretend otherwise. So for our sin to be forgiven, there has to be a payment made. This is true in our relationship with God, and really I think it's true in all experiences of forgiveness. So I want to just give you a hypothetical situation to think through as you think about forgiveness and the payment of debts. This will be hard for some of you to wrap your mind around, but just see if you can follow with me. Imagine that the Dallas Cowboys made the playoffs. Okay, just imagine and imagine that you came over to my house to watch the game. I usually don't invite people over to watch the game because I don't want you to hear how much I yell at the TV. But imagine that I invited you over to my house and we're watching the game together. Dallas Cowboys in the playoffs. Imagine, this is hard, I know. But imagine the Cowboys committed 14 penalties in that playoff game. Just <laughs> hypothetically. And imagine that the Cowboys had a really fast running back who stood on the sideline the whole game, except for the time we went down the field and scored a touchdown, and in the game was a really slow running back. Just imagine that that happened. They made the fast guy stand on the sideline, and they put the slow guy in the game. And imagine that we're losing, but at one point we run a trick play. And we're going to throw the ball across the field to a guy that nobody's looking at. And instead of throwing it across the field to that guy, we throw it all the way over his head into the first row. And then imagine when you think all hope is lost, somehow, miracle of miracles, we have a chance at the end of the game. But we're running out of time. And just imagine that we decide to run the ball right up the middle of the field and we try to stop the clock, and it doesn't happen, and we lose. Can you imagine this? Okay. There you are with your big silver Yeti cup with a blue star on the side of it, and you get so mad that you haul off and you wind up and you throw your Yeti cup at my television... I'm not confessing anything to you. I'm just telling you, hypothetically. I'm not confessing anything. Got that picture off Google. You throw your cup at my television and you punch a hole right in it and it falls down halfway sideways. We now have two problems. Problem number one, we're Dallas Cowboy fans. I can't fix that problem. Problem number two, you owe me a television. You have a debt to me at that point. Whether you meant to do it or you didn't. You owe me a TV. And someone has to pay if I'm gonna get a new TV. Someone's gotta pay. I can go down and I can say, you know what, it's okay. I wanted to do the same thing. You just beat me to it. I've been wanting a new TV anyways. And I can go down and I can buy the new TV and I can absorb the cost. Or like a sane person, I can look at you and say, I need a new TV. You owe me a TV. You have a debt to me, and that debt needs to be paid. Listen, as you stand before God as a sinful person, you have a debt. Your sin puts you in debt to God. 
and your debt is so great that it's not quite as easy as going down to Sam's or Walmart or wherever and buying a TV. It's an unpayable debt. Fortunately for you, the God of the Bible is a merciful God. And he's willing to forgive your debt. Now listen, he's not just going to sweep it under the rug and then put the rug back down with a big giant pile there and say, let's just pretend it didn't happen. There's got to be a payment made. He's a holy God. He's a righteous God. He's a just God. The story of this book is the story of the holy God sending his only son, Jesus, to live on this earth, to live a life of perfect, sinless obedience so that he had no sin to pay for of his own so that our sin could be placed on him and our debt could be paid in full. That's how sin is forgiven. Jesus pays our debt and he paid it at the cross. You know, there's a lot of people who wrestle with the question, how could a loving God send anyone to hell? And that's a question worth wrestling over. It's not an obviously easy question to answer. But there's a harder question that we ought to wrestle with when we see the gravity and the unpayable nature of our sin debt, and that is how is the holy, righteous, just God going to forgive anyone's sin? without just acting like it's no big deal, because it is a big deal, and the answer is Jesus. The answer is the cross. Jesus paid our debt so that we can be forgiven. Secondly, God's forgiveness changes our eternity and it changes our character. When God pours forgiveness into your life, it changes your eternity and it changes your character. As Americans, we like to focus on the first blank, Eternity. We just want to make sure, am I going to heaven? Am I not going to hell? We want this spiritual transaction to take place. And here's the reality of it. Salvation in the biblical sense is transactional in a way. The Bible uses accounting language, numbers language, to talk about the fact that when you put your faith in Jesus, your sin is credited to what he did on the cross and his righteousness is credited to your account. That's describing a transaction. And that transaction changes your eternity. You now have the hope of heaven. You are now part of what Jesus talks about in verse 23, the kingdom of heaven. Not just when you die, but now. You receive that gift now. But when Jesus talks about forgiveness, it's not just about are you going to go to heaven when you die. It is about that. And if you've never settled that question, you should settle it today. You should repent of your sin and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Your sin will be forgiven. Your debt will be erased. And God will begin to work in your life in amazing ways. God will cause you to be born again. God will send his spirit to live inside of you. And God will begin to work in you so that you become more like Jesus. This is what we mean when we say forgiven people are forgiving people. Let me tell you how true that is. Jesus says it here. He says it in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6. It's so true 
that if you are an unforgiving person and that doesn't bother you, I can assure you, regardless of what transaction you think has taken place between you and God, you are not forgiven. That's how strongly Jesus points it, describes it. That's the picture that he's painting. If you are an unforgiving person and that does not bother you, you have not been forgiven. Regardless of where you're a member at a church, regardless of how many times you've been baptized, regardless of how many times you've prayed a prayer, you're not forgiven. Lastly, living in community with sinful people will require us to be forgiving people. If you're going to live in relationship and community with other sinful human beings and looking around the room, that's all of us, you are going to have to be a forgiving person. This is true in your family, it's true with your friends, it's true at work, and it is certainly true at church. Hang around here long enough, I promise you someone will sin against you. Guaranteed. Your feelings will get hurt. Someone will ignore you when you pass them in the hallway. Someone will say something about you they had no business saying. You'll be left out of something that you felt like you should be involved in. I don't know what it's going to be, but it's going to happen. We're all sinful people. And you put a bunch of sinners together in a church family, people are going to sin against each other. You know what? Jesus is well aware of that fact, which is why in Matthew 18, 15 to 20, he says, here's how you handle it. Here's how you deal with it. Look, you don't have a lot of options here. You certainly don't have a lot of good options. I mean, one option is you can just say, I'm going to be a hermit, monk, recluse. You've probably wanted to do that at some point in the last couple of years and say, I'm just leaving all of you crazy people and I'm, I'm just going off on my own. So that's an option to get away from all of us, much less likely that we'll sin against you, although we'll still talk about you while you're gone. Option two, you can join a church like this one and you can say, look, I'm here and you're blessed to have me, and I'm gonna hang around until somebody crosses me. And when somebody crosses me, I don't have a lot of patience for nonsense. I'm cutting them out of my life, and if I can't cut them out of my life, I'll cut myself out of this church, and I'll go somewhere else. That's an option. If that's the option you choose, you're gonna be cutting people out of your life all the time, and you're going to be a member of any given church for about two weeks on rotation, nonstop. So you can do one of those two things, or you can listen to Jesus, and when someone sins against you, you can go talk to them about it. Not to be mean, not to run them off, not to lead to excommunication, but to reconcile with them. People may come to you with things that you've done to them. You may need to be the one who seeks or asks for forgiveness. And as I describe that to you, man, I know it's tough. I mean, the video we watched earlier is proof that forgiveness is tough. And you watch something like that and you say, oh, man, that's tough. It's certainly not 
popular within our culture today to act this way. Why would you take that third option? Number one, you take that third option of forgiveness because that's what God has done for you. He sent his son to pay your debt so that you could be forgiven. And secondly, that's what God is doing in you if you are a forgiven person. He is turning you into someone who looks like his son and he is making you not only forgiven but also forgiving.